Good morning. Scripture this morning is Revelation 2, verses 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Hello. Hey, you ever, you ever wake up in the morning and think, I want to do something different this week? I did. Um, we, uh, yeah, we've been studying Peter for like forever now. Like it's been like almost a year. We did First Peter, now we're in Second Peter. And so it's Thanksgiving, and I don't know why that matters, but I took that opportunity to say, oh, so I'm going to teach them something different. Um, it really, there's no connection between Revelation and Thanksgiving at all. So, um, but I'm teaching there anyways, because I, I just wanted to go somewhere else for one, just one week. Can I have that? Can I do that? And, uh, and, I, and I was studying some stuff, and I was like, man, what if I never teach this book? Um, I want to teach this. And so here we are. We're going to talk about Revelation chapter 2 today out of nowhere. <laughs> so, okay. Awesome. Um, but I mean, there's some fascinating stuff. There's some awesome stuff. And, um, and so let's open up an order. Was that me? I don't think so. Let's open up an order of prayer. And, uh, and, and, and let's talk about Revelation today, shall we? Just, just, just we're on vacation. All right? So let's pray. Father. We love you. We thank you for everything that you give to us. We thank you for um, even the testings and the trials. We thank you for the, uh, the, the family that we all have. We thank you for the journeys we've all been on. Uh, we know that you are working. We know you are taking us somewhere. You're leading us to something. And, and I ask that you would uh, give us patience and give us trust and faith. And lead us and teach us to follow. Be with us this morning. Let us be encouraged um, through the conversations that we have about you and about life. And, uh, and uh, give us exactly what we need when we need it. Allow me to speak freely. Allow me to uh, communicate the things that I've studied. And, and uh, allow us to all be very present here today. And not distracted by the things that, are, that have been going on throughout our week. And the conversations that went bad and the, um, just the things our world uh, is dealing with. Let us be here with you. Thank you. In your name. Amen. All right. Today, um, we're going to talk about an ancient church. It is a church in, in a town called Ephesus. Now, um, oh, wait a minute. I went too far. There. Um, this is all that's really left of Ephesus now. Um, Ephesus is, it was an ancient Roman city. And it was the, the center of pagan worship in Rome. Um, they called it emperor worship, and it had to do with all these ancient Greek mythological gods. And um, they believed that the Caesar and the emperors were among these gods and were helping make decisions and, and ruling in this world. So um, it's the center of 
of this ancient worship. Their biggest export was idols. They would carve them, and they would sell them, and people would worship them. And so it was this place where spirituality was huge. The people were very open to spiritual things. The people were very open to hearing new ideas. Um, and when they heard these new ideas, they listened intently um, because they believed that there was more going on around them than, than they could see. And so they had all these gods that they were all worshiping, um, and they didn't want to lose any. They didn't want to miss any because they, they were just such spiritual people, and they believed that they didn't worship the right god. Um, then sort of tragedy would fall upon them. So um, there's, there's a passage in a book of Acts um, if you want to follow along in, in your Bibles this morning, they're, they're all in the seats in front of you if you don't, for some reason, have a smartphone with a Bible app. Um, anyways, but there's, there's manual Bibles in front of you. You can open up and, and flip the pages to. Um, in Acts chapter 19, there is this, this really interesting event where Paul brings the gospel message to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, um, people are hearing this message of Jesus and they are absorbing it. Like, like no one else. They are loving it, and they're, and they're following Jesus, and they're, they're turning around their lives around, and they're putting off all of the things that they were doing before. And so in the midst of all of this, there's this really interesting story that happens where the priests in the temple were coming out, and, and, and they were seeing all the people buying into um, this, a new God that they sort of were, were sort of um, seeing like, oh, there's another God and all the people are worshiping it. And so the priests in the temple were coming out and, and they were sort of um, usurping the name of, of Jesus and they were attempting to teach Jesus as well um, because they wanted more and more followers. It was sort of, it was the center of commerce, was this idol worship kind of stuff. And so the priests are going around and they find this guy who, um, according to the story, is, is demon-possessed and they go to this man and they try to cast out this demon um, and it doesn't go well. And, and uh, so if, if you read in Acts chapter 15, uh, the man responds to the priests by saying, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, in the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So embarrassing moment for them. This is the spiritual walk of shame for the priests. They're trying to cash out cast out this demon and it doesn't go well and the man jumps on him, beats them all up, takes their clothes and they go running out of the house naked across the city and it's super embarrassing for them. And, and as, the story, as the story continues, um, we read more things that happen um, because this story was a big deal and everyone saw that these priests uh, sort of didn't have the authority that they always thought they had and the people hear about this story of, of the man basically beating them up and chasing them away. And it says this, uh, and, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. As many of those who were new believers, uh, who were now believers, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this is fascinating. Um, They hear this story and it's sort of something about it awakens them. And the people start admitting uh, who were new followers of Jesus. They start coming out of the woodwork and saying, "Um, I've been taking part in these pagan practices too. 
I've been, it, what it calls the magic arts and sorcery. I've been doing this too, and they all did. And so they all started running back to their houses, and they grabbed their scrolls, and they bring them, and they throw them in a big pile, and they have a good old-fashioned scroll-burning party. And they are just um, destroying these scrolls that they decide they no longer need. They have a new way of life. They have a new um, view of reality of the world around them, new spiritual life. And they no longer need the things that they had before, and so they throw them in the fire, and they're burning them. So... Um, this is chaos. Okay, imagine you are driving down the road and maybe you're passing by like Waterworks Park and there's a, a group of people out there and they're burning this huge pile of stuff. There's like Ouija boards and ACDC vinyls and <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons cards. And, and, and I mean, when I was a kid, I went to many, I was a youth group kid for a little while there and I went to several of those CD burning parties where I, I saved plenty of Nirvana CDs out of the fire. Um, and they were burning things. And so imagine you come upon these people and they're all gathered around a big pile and they're burning. They're having this huge bonfire and you come up and you say, hey, what's going on here? And they're like, hey, uh, we're, we're planning a church. And it's not the normal way of starting a church. And it's completely out of control and their numbers are growing and it's chaotic. But all of it is centered around this idea that everything has changed and that they no longer will live like they have. And so they're getting rid of their past life and the way they viewed the world around them. And they're throwing it all on the fire and they're burning it all up. Um, This is far different from what we do today um, when we decide, well, we're going to start a church. And so we're going to start with a core group and we're going to make pamphlets and we're going to buy a billboard and a website. We need a website. And we're going to start small. And, but this is, this is chaos. This is real. This is people running from all over. This new thing is blowing their minds and it's changing them. So what's going on here? So first, it raises a lot of questions. One of the questions we have is what is this sorcery stuff that they were doing? Um, in the first century, sorcery, as they call it, or magic arts, as they called it, has had its roots um, in... Uh, superstition. And superstition is the ancient way of looking at the world around you. Um, God is mad at you, and you have to do things to make God happy with you. And there's tons of gods, and you have to keep them all happy. And so superstition, if we're going to define it, it says the gods are angry with us, and we must appease them. We must offer another baby on the altar, throw another virgin in the volcano, and try another spell, because we need rain. So do something to make the gods happy. This is what All of this was. They had this idea that there was all these gods and they had to keep them happy. And so they had developed all these spells and all these kind of things that they believed um, did something. Um, I found out recently that when you blow in your old NES games and you try to get them to work, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. They wouldn't work unless you blew in them. Turns out that's actually not true at all. That actually damages them and slowly kills them over time. But I asked somebody who was a scientist about this and he actually said... No, actually, when you blow into your games, you're doing this, and it's actually destroying them, and it doesn't make them work. That's all just superstition. Um, It's it's validated by the fact that you blew in it once, and you put it in, and it worked, but it would have worked anyway had you not blown in it. (laughs) Superstition. There it is. Um, So it's this idea that you have to do something to receive something. So that's superstition. Um, But what the early Christians were bringing into the mix, what they were bringing into the city of Ephesus was different. It was the gospel announcement that God is good and God is love and God sent Jesus to make peace with you. You do not have to live with fear that you are at the mercy of these forces in the universe when the creator and the sustainer of all things is on your side. That he loves you 
and wants you to come to him and he's drawing you in. And all of these religions and things that, that you adhere to, you are putting on yourself. God's not doing that to you. And this woke them up. So what we're witnessing here in Ephesus is a huge leap forward. It's huge. It's an understanding, a sudden awakening in their minds that the world is not what they thought it was. That God is not who they thought it was, he was. That the spiritual realm is not necessarily what they thought it was. That it's better. And that all things are held by the same person, controlled by the same person. And this love that you feel for others, this gift that you have of love is actually something that, that God has for you. And he's calling you into relationship with him. And he's done all the work and he wants you to look. And so this is totally different. And this is freeing for them. So this is what's happening in Ephesus. And this is how the church plants. Um, <clears throat> this was sometime around the year, uh, the, the year 50. I almost said 1950 for some reason. This is almost around the year 50. Um, the year 50. I always want to add something to it. It's just the year 50. Um, and so it's a very long time ago. And it's, it's the birth of something different in this city. Now, um, <clears throat> let's talk about the book of, of Revelation, shall we? Revelation. Um, now, there's nothing I could say about Revelation that everyone will be like, I agree with that, because there's a million different views in Revelation. Um, and I have mine, and you have yours, and that's fine. I can only talk from mine. So, um, Revelation is, as I see it, a, uh, a political commentary on Rome in the late first century, between 90 and 100. And it's written by a man named John um, from an island called Patmos. And John is a pastor of a church, and he has been exiled by the emperor Domitian. The emperor has decided to destroy Christianity, and he's rounding up all the Christians, and no matter what he does, it's spreading more and more and more. So he decides to just go for the leaders of the churches so that people will have no grounding for how to practice this new faith. And so he gathers up all the pastors and he sends them all to this island called Patmos. And from there, John writes this letter. And he writes this letter in a special kind of language um, called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, it simply means veiled language. It used to be called the language of the oppressed. Um, it's a, sort of a very Jewish way of writing that's very heavy on symbolism so that um, the people receiving the letter can understand what it's saying. But anyone else who found the letter, let's say a Roman soldier, would not understand what it is saying. Um, and in this letter, the reason he has to write in this language is because he's writing about the emperor. He's writing about Domitian. He calls him the beast. He calls him the Antichrist. He's writing, about, um, he's writing about what's going on in the Agora, how the Christians aren't allowed to buy or sell anything um, unless they worship the false gods. And so now they've been sort of um, uh, kicked out of society, if you will. They can't partake in society. Um, he's writing about a lot of things. Um, and the big overarching story of Revelation is that Rome is going to fall. It's not going to last. It's sort of like Isaiah chapter 10 where he says, because of the injustice of your city, it's going to fall. And so John writes and says, because the beast is running so rampant and doing everything that is the opposite of what God wants us to do, this whole, this whole nation is going to fall. But the kingdom of God will last forever. And so he even uses some of the... Um, some of the Roman beasts, like the god Nike, used the lion with the wings, and he flies around proclaiming Rome is the victor, while John has him proclaiming Jesus is the victor, and it's different. And so he's writing to this, these um, seven particular cities along, along this trade route. So you leave the Isle of Patmos, and you go to Ephesus. Um, the trade route would go like this. First, it would go to Ephesus. It would go north to Smyrna, north to Pergamum. It would go west to Theatira, south, um, east, I'm sorry, southeast to Sardis, southeast to Philadelphia, 
southeast to Laodicea, and then absolute west back to Ephesus again, where it was copied a whole bunch of times and dispersed all over Rome. So John is writing this letter to these people in this veiled language that they will understand. And he, he has some things to say to them. So let's look at um, what he has to say to them. First, I want, I want you to understand this was written between 90 and 100. Um, the church in Ephesus was started around 50 to 55. And so you have about 50 years or so later, after the church starts, John writes them this letter. And so we're going to get a glimpse of what's happened over the last 50 years to this church. Um, this is about three generations later. And so these would be the grandchildren of the church in Acts. It started, okay? So let's read where we're at. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Okay, so hold on. This is the words of Jesus. John says Jesus came to him, told him to say these things. And so when you open your scriptures and you read, this is all going to be in red if you have a red letter Bible. Um, it says this, to the angel in the church of Ephesus writes, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Um, sounds pretty crazy. Not really sure what it means uh, when you just read it without context. Well, the, uh, the seven stars, he talks about how um, it's from him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars... Um, represented, I'm sorry, I lost my place here, uh, represent the seven main lights in the sky. There was, when they looked up at the sky, they, they saw uh, the ancient first century people, um, seven sort of gods in the sky, if you will, when they looked at the sky. Um, there was uh, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And so he says, this is the person writing to you has a message, and it's the person that holds all these stars in his right hand. So it's God. And God has a message for them. And it's, it's him who walks along the seven, among the seven lampstands, the seven golden lampstands. So this would be the seven churches that I showed the map of a second ago um, in that trade route. And so he's writing to the seven churches. He calls them lampstands because they hold light. Um, this is very important to understand because um, the message of God in scriptures is constantly referred to as light. Why? it goes into dark, a dark world and it illuminates the people to how things really are and how things can be and should be and will be when God is done with them. Um, Jesus calls his followers the light of the world. Um, Jesus says in the book of Mark, um, you would never light a lamp and then hide it under a basket or under a bowl. First off, it's a fire hazard. Second, um, it defeats the whole purpose of the light. Light doesn't exist for itself. Light exists for everything else around it. And so he refers to the churches as the lampstand, the, the people who hold the light. And they hold it up high for the world to see, to illuminate everything around them. So um, let's move on here. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. So... What's going on here? There's some issues with the apostles. Um, what is an apostle? It's not talking about the apostles as in the ones who wrote the scripture, the, the, the ones who personally knew Jesus. Um, it's talking about the, um, the gift of apostle. Apostle in the early churches, it was sort of someone who had the ability to gather people. It was like a church planner. It was a leader in the church. So there's these issues with church leadership. And... He's writing, he's talking about how you've, look, you've, got, you've done this for a long time now, three generations, and you've toiled, and you're patient, and you have endurance, and, and you can't bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And so there's apparently these fights happening over leadership, and they're squabbling amongst each other, and they're, 
Um, they're become, they become incredibly inward focused. Um, and so what was in the beginning, two generations ago, this movement of awakening and light and love and excitement that the people are suddenly given hope and a new way to live and a new way to view the world around them that is good and it's vibrant and it's healthy. And it, it brings about reconciliation and renewal of, of relationships and healing. It has now become, you're spending a lot of time fighting amongst yourselves and it's grown a lot. The church has grown a lot. And, and um, we know that they had buildings and they had money and they had influence. Um, and they've become very inward focused on themselves. And they become so consumed with who they are and not who's outside of them. So, um, I, w- I want you to think about this because have you ever, has there ever been like a band that you absolutely loved and they made this record and this record is amazing and you listen to it over and over and over and it's you, it's like the epitome of anything that's made in, in, in like five or ten years around it. It's an incredible record. And two years later they come out with another record and this one record they made has just gone just through the roof. Everyone loves it. It's incredible. So they put out a second one and it's just meh. And you just kind of wonder, like, what happened between the first and the second record? What happened? How did this turn into this? How did this get ruined? Well, there was a point in time when the band was making music for the music because they had something that they believed the people needed to hear. They, they said, they, these people need to hear this. It's going to change them. And, and later on, it's, it's grown in this thing. It's making a lot of money and, and they've got to manage this image. And then they start saying, who's responsible for this and that? And they start fighting and they're distracted and, and they don't have the freedom they used to because now they have to maintain. And so that's where we are with this church in Ephesus. Um, they've lost sight. And so if you keep reading, it says this, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost the plot of this story. You've gotten so much into managing this whole thing that you no longer even see what's going on outside. You just don't see it. It's gone. All that's on your mind is like what's going on with you guys. And you can no longer really see. You're so self-focused and you're supposed to be the lampstand. You're supposed to hold the light and illuminate everything around you. And then he, he puts, he sort of drops the hammer and he says this in verse five. Remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He says, remember, remember that scroll burning party? Do you remember how this thing started? the hope that you're giving people. And you didn't have any of this. You didn't have all the structure and you didn't have all of the, all of the distractions. It was just you and people and people had needs and you were meeting them. And you were reaching out and you were pouring yourselves out for these people and it changed this whole city. Remember where you came from and remember where you've fallen. And this is a big deal. He says, you've lost the plot. You've forgotten why this all started. Your first love was people and helping them find hope, and now it's not. And he says, and you've been working hard, and it's good, and I see you're in, you've endured all this stuff patiently, but right now, at this moment, you're off track. And then he says one more thing. If not, 
So let's start over. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so he says, remember how this was and look how it is now. If you don't change, I'm going to blow the, the candle out. I'm going to remove it. I'm just going to take it away. When he calls them a lampstand, he's reminding them that they're not there for themselves at all. We, we grow and then we change. And this happens in businesses, small business. This happens in your own personal life. This happens in churches. It happens in ministries. It happens in everything. You start off with this idea like this is going to help people big time. And, and then you move away from it and, and you end up somewhere completely different. And most churches um, start at this place where there's this need and there's this town and in the city who, who needs them. And then fast forward 15, 20 years down the road and they're all gathered around arguing over a piece of paper that has a doctrinal statement on it, and they're all so wrapped up in this little thing, and people are walking out the doors, and, and they're just like, they're not even noticing, and they don't realize that they've lost everything that they started this whole thing for, and I, I, I see this everywhere. I think the American church at large is there. I think evangelicalism at large is there. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. We've lost the plot of all of this. 2 hold the light is a privilege. You have something that people need. The church should be the people that are out there reconciling people in whatever capacity that they need reconciliations. And so, and so a, a group of, of Jesus followers goes into a place and you see people and you say, hey, What's your need? Where are you broken? Is it your, your physical self? You need healing. Well, there's somebody in the church who maybe is a doctor and, and we can help. And what's your, what's your need? Emotional? Your marriage is falling apart? Your family? Well, we have counselors. Come talk to them. What's your need? Your soul is broken. There's something, you're disconnected from God. You need direction. You need spiritual discernment and guidance. Well, we have theologians and pastors and, and come get healing. Whatever it is that is broken and, and you need fixing, that's what God is into doing. And that's what the church is for. What are we doing here? This is not about us. We are simply the lamp that holds the light and people are drawn to it and they look and the light shines on them and they look at their life and they can see, well, there's a bunch of broken stuff here. Maybe if I bring it into the light, I can see it better so that it can be fixed. And we open our arms and we welcome them in and we say, hey, we're broken just like you. That's what the church is here for. There is the season we're going into now that has also gotten incredibly off track. The Christmas story is actually a hostile invasion. I mean, we were at war with God. I mean, uh, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. And so we were enemies of God. We were destroying everything that he had created and created for a reason and for purpose. And... Instead of just wiping us out and instead of creating more distance between us, he closes that distance and he becomes one of us and walks among us. And the whole time he's walking among us, you have Jesus saying, "Um, love your enemies, turn the cheek, pray for those who persecute you, embrace those who are unembraceable. 
instead of pushing them away, it's, it's, it's this moving towards them. Once you were alienated from God, but you were enemies, but, but God has closed the gap. But that's what God is doing. God is moving towards us in love, not in war, not in retaliation, but in love and peace. And it's the same thing that Jesus taught. And he says, and the whole time Jesus is here, he also says, follow me, follow me, which means do what I do. Step where I step, do what I do. You are, we are now called the hands and feet with the body of Christ. The idea of the ascension is that Jesus' body is no longer here, but yes, it is because you are here. We are the body, the hands and feet. Jesus has no body in this world but us. That's it. And so somehow this idea of God moving towards enemies and loving them and closing the gap has become, in, in the Christmas season, has become I'm offended by cups that don't say Christmas and I'm upset by the sheer lack of plastic baby Jesuses in the public square. And, and this is what's become. And so now we create more space between us and them and we, we demand that they change and come to us. And we create more and more and more space. And God says, why are you doing this? Follow me. I am moving towards people. I am moving towards the enemy. I am, I am arms open and it's painful and it hurts, but that's what I'm doing. Totally different. And so he comes and he asks the church, remember how this all started? There was this invasion. You were the enemy and God invaded and embraced you. And he loved you despite all of your problems and all of your differences and it changed you. Not all at once, some of you all at once, but slowly over time, you grew warm. Your cold heart sort of thawed. And you became a different kind of person. And some of you, you're in that process now, and you will continue in this process. And he says, remember how this started, and look at yourself now, and look how far this has all fallen. How did we get here? And so this also plays out on a personal scale. When you came to Jesus, what was it for? What was it about? What did you need? What was the healing that you received? What part of you changed? And why are we no longer taking part in doing that in the world around us? Three generations from now, what will this all look like? Are we still going to be so inward focused that we sit around and argue about doctrinal statements while the world burns around us? I hope not. Because then Jesus says, if this happens, I'm just going to come and blow that candle out and I'm going to take that lampstand and I'm going to take it somewhere else because it's a privilege to hold the light. Yeah? So let's take communion and let's ponder the ways that this applies to us. Let's ponder the ways that um, we have fallen from where we were supposed to be. So our communion servers, we do this every week. If you're new here, communion is a central part of everything we do. They, they uh, take the, the elements of communion. There's bread and there's wine, and they spread around the room. And we take a piece of bread, and we, we rip it off, and the bread is broken. It symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. And we dip it in the wine, and, and, and we eat it. It's the wine symbolizes the, bread of, the, the, the blood of Christ spilled for us so that we could find healing, so that we could find reconciliation with God, so that we could find salvation not just in our souls, but in our lives and in our world. And so we take some time and we ponder all of the ways that we have lost the plot this morning. And we consider Jesus. And we ask questions about how we are not following him anymore.
and how we can get back to where this all started. He says, do you remember when it was like this? There are specific times in my life when I can remember it. It was just this vibrant thing. And sometimes we're there again and sometimes we're not. I remember a room full of 30 people that would spend our Friday and Saturday nights sitting on the steps of the Catholic Church downtown just getting to know homeless people. Um, I remember we canceled church one day and we all went and bought groceries and brought them um, to the middle of the room and we, we, we blessed them and then we delivered them to poor people all over the place. And, and so these things are still happening on smaller scales, but they could be grand. They could be huge. People need healing and reconciliation. They need hope. We are the candle stands that hold that hope. Maybe you don't realize it, but the story of Jesus is incredibly hopeful for the healing of this world. And we desperately need it. And so let's pray and let's take communion, shall we? Father, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our minds. Thank you for this season. Remind us that this Christmas invasion was you drawing near to the enemies and pouring yourself out for us. And then you stand up and you say, now follow me. Teach us to follow you. Remind us of the first love that we once had, the joy and the peace. And let us find all of that again every single day. We love you. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.